Come in, come in, and welcome to the Cave of the Eco Chamber. This is a podcast brought to you by the journalists of ENDS Report, exploring the most important environmental policy in the UK, with me, your host, James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be bringing you an exclusive on the landfills leaching a poisonous cocktail of dangerous forever chemicals into our waterways, the latest twist in the saga that is biodiversity net gain, and the genesis of the environmental red dragon watchdog set to be created in Wales. For our deep dive, we'll go further into the nightmare of PFAS pollution, from PFAS firefighting foams to dirty brownfield, even a little bit on the EU. So let's adventure for this week's Eco Chamber! To help me on my expedition into the cave of big green news this week, I'm joined by ENDS Features and News Editors Tess Colley and Pippa Neal. PFAS, per- and polyfluorinated substances. Those scarily wondrous chemicals that give us those incredibly water and oil-resistant things and tolerances to high temperatures. Nope, not a sun cream lotion, but we do use them in so many of our everyday items. Pippa, can you just take us through some of the things where we might expect to find PFAS? So the thing about PFAS is they're basically everywhere and used in many, many products. But for example, they're used in plastic bottles, pizza boxes, nail polish, furniture like sofas and cleaning products, even um, shampoo. Frying pans is the classic one, because when we think of PFAS, often might think of Teflon. Yeah, those Um, non-stick pans. Yeah, takeaway food packaging fake grass like the list is endless nice toes between that um so some of those pfas chemicals is worth saying not all but some are incredibly toxic for us aren't they yes so the most kind of notorious and well-researched pfas chemicals are pfoa and pfos which are both banned in the uk And they're known to act as a hormone disruptor, which negatively impacts thyroid hormone production. Um, And studies have also shown a link between long-term exposure and the development of some cancers. And presumably then we've got these things which we once used. We then chuck them and they end up, some of them end up in landfill, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's a problem why... Yeah, so basically, as part of an investigation I've been doing, I've been looking into the chemicals within these landfill leachate. Um, And leachate is defined by the Environment Agency as being a potentially polluting liquid, which, unless managed and eventually returned to the environment in a carefully and controlled manner, may cause harmful effects on groundwater and surface pollution that surround the landfill. Um, And I've obtained the results of some sampling that the government and the Environment Agency kind of contracted out. Um, They asked some conductors to sample this leachate to kind of look at the chemicals within this liquid. Can can you run us through some of those numbers that you found? So the samples did vary, um, with the lowest recording being um, a total PFAS sum of 79 nanograms per litre. But the average across all 17 landfills was 19,497 nanograms per litre. But the highest um, in all of the samples was um, like over 100,000 nanograms per litre. So, yeah, pretty high. And and for, for those like me who don't work in nanograms per litres of PFAS, what does that sort of mean? So just to kind of put the number in context, the Drinking Water Inspectorate's current guidance state that the acceptable level of P- PFOS and PFOA is 100 nanograms per litre. Um, 
and although this leachate isn't necessarily you know directly polluting drinking water that just kind of helps us to understand just how high these figures are that we're talking about here. yeah so from 0.00 to you know thousands mm. right of nanograms per liter i actually always think that it's a really good thing when you find out these stories not because of the bad thing but because we now know it's a thing and we've got the data we can quantify it and presumably we can take action on those 17 landfills now well unfortunately not so basically when i got access to this database um it was anonymous so it was just basically a load of numbers in a big spreadsheet kind of showing me all the different chemicals that the contractors had measured in the samples that they'd taken from the landfills um and when i went back to the environment agency and to defra to say look it would be great you know where are what are the locations of these landfills what type of landfills are they because without that kind of information we don't know just how significant this is um and they came back to me to basically say that they don't know the locations because the sampling was done by a third party contracted by the government and that the locations weren't provided now i'm no data scientist but does that sound right to you tess <laughs> well, I mean, never mind what i think there's real expert supervision on this um yeah that admission that Basically, we we don't know where these landfills are. It has shocked people who who spoke to spoke to Pippa. Um, so, Dr. Shubhi Sharma is a scientific research assistant at campaign group ChemTrust, and she told ENS that it is extremely worrying that the EEA claims not to know the location of these landfills. And Penelope Gain, who's the head of practice uh, at the campaign group Fish Legal, um, you know, she was equally surprised. She said there are poor records of what has been accepted at these sites in the past, and even those that represented the best engineering at the time are woefully inadequate by modern standards. But although there may be no quick fixes to these problems, people have a right to know where they are in the country, given the potential risks to their health and to wildlife. Um, she sort of went on to say, what exactly is stopping the agency going back to its contractors and, and asking for the locations of these sites? Because it does seem a bit of an oversight. Yeah, and a fair follow up question, I'd say. But so what we what do we know then, Pippa, right now about these landfills? So right now, it's kind of impossible to know just how much this leachate is polluting the environment. But what we do know is that the Environment Agency said that the majority of landfills targeted by the survey are operational landfills, receiving household and commercial waste, which they say have containment systems to prevent leachate from escaping into the groundwater or into the soil as well. And I guess that is, you know, a good thing. Um, but it also says, you know, there are other other more like older historical landfills that don't have these containment kind of um, linings or containment or filtration systems. And they're likely going to have even higher chemicals because, you know, this was before there were kind of re regulations restricting the use of products with these chemicals in. At Inns report, we have written a fair bit about these legacy landfills um, and, you know, the problem with lining and the lack of regulation back then. Um so how does that old problem of landfills tie in with this new problem of PFAS? Well, the thing is, is it's impossible to know because as far as I'm aware, this study, which we've been reporting on for this story, is the first time that kind of a government, the government in the UK has kind of done testing of PFAS specifically in this landfill leachate. But we know it's obviously going to be there. Like it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's in so many products and especially in these kind of older landfills it's extremely likely it's going to be there 
Um, and uh, as part of this story, um, we've mapped England's old hazardous landfill sites, which revealed that 13% of them are located within groundwater source protection zones, which are defined around like large public groundwater abstraction sites. Um, and the purpose of these zones is to provide additional protection to safeguard drinking water. So while this analysis does not necessarily prove that these hazardous and historic landfill sites are polluting the drinking water, it does show us that they're there and that there's 167 of the 1,287 old landfill sites are located within these zones. And I think it's quite interesting to note that under the current regulations, these landfill sites would not be permitted to be built now. So when it comes to today's landfills and they're trying to treat you know the the contaminants that they're dealing with that's that's a good thing right well not necessarily um so ray parmenter who's the former head of technical at the chartered institute of waste management um, which is the trade body representing the waste industry explained to me that many modern landfill operators will take this leachate out of the landfill treat it on site and that then they will discharge this either directly to a sewer or in many cases actually into just open water um, so I know of one landfill that kind of treats its leachate and discharges it directly into a creek, so a pretty small body of water that runs alongside the landfill. Which is legal. Yeah, legal. That's all re- allowed in the permit. Um, and this treatment kind of process does remove some of the pollutants, but it's not intended to remove PFAS, so it won't be doing that. Right. So you're actually sort of flushing the PFAS problem downstream, so to speak. Um So when it comes to the issue of treating contaminants, how does that tie in with your data sets? So it's quite interesting because in the sampling in this data set, it actually reveals that for PFOA, the highest reading was in a treated sample at 26,900 nanograms per litre. And the same was also seen for PFOS, where the highest reading was 2,460 nanograms per litre. So across the whole data set, the highest samples for the two most kind of known hazardous chemicals were in the treated samples. And it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Because you'd think that if you're treating it, you're doing a good thing. But in a way, they're sort of exposing more of it to the water environment. Mm. That's incredible. Yeah, it is difficult to say. You know, we don't know that it's exactly the same like sample that was treated and measured as being raw. But there's definitely some questions here around, you know, if these landfills are legally allowed to dispose this treated leachate into open water, into a sewer, but it doesn't seem to remove these toxic chemicals, kind of, do we need to rethink that a bit? And we'll be talking about remediation a bit later as part of our deep dive into PFAS, which is all part of this incredible um, briefing that you guys have put together called the PFAS files. So listeners will give you uh, an exclusive on some of that for our deep dive a bit later on. But for now, I would love us to move on to biodiversity net gain um, and in particular, the biodiversity net gain metric, which is always a good laugh. <laughs> um, and and just when I thought this policy had kind of been put to bed, you know, we're going to roll this out pretty soon. There's been another sort of twist to the this tale, isn't there, Tess? Yes, we all had our policy pyjamas on. <laughs> Get out of bed. Because, yes, rollout is on the 12th February, um, but there has been a development with, with the metro, which, which kind of ties into other policy areas and has spooked uh, environmentalists a little. So net gain, I get that, you know, it's this big policy that's meant to help improve nature, you know, post-development for the construction industry. And I thought it was all rosy, but 
the there's a there's another tr- there's another concern here, isn't there, for environmentalists involving another environmental policy? <laughs> yeah, it is is an involved area, so bear with us, uh, listeners. Um, but basically, what you have is local nature recovery strategies. These are separate to net gain, uh, but they've been touted by government as a, a collective mechanism needed to reverse nature's decline. Um, and these strategies are meant to link in with net gain, which is this other massive policy uh, the government's got to try and you know stop the to halt the decline of species um and that, that was meant to link in with this thing very sexily called the strategic significance multiplier um which is part of this metric a tool for measuring the amount of nature that you have it's like you know if you how can you say you've got 10 percent more if you can't put a number to it so that's what this tool was trying to do and as it stands the current interpretation of this this mechanism the strategic significance multiplier uh is that it would uh, apply before development begins at the baseline calculation stage where it would penalize development in these local nature recovery strategy areas um and then at post intervention stage it would it is meant to reward the creation so I, basically it's meant to say don't build there but put your offsets there and make more nature yay get it get it with you great stay with me um so in the statutory net gain metric which was published in november 2023 so just you know a couple of months ago there was an unexpected tweak to this this mechanism and basically what it does to to summarize a very technical thing it disapplies that first bit the penalty from the baseline calculation so it's taken away the reason to say don't build here but still put offsets here but there's a little part of net gain which is like if you build somewhere you're meant to put most of your offsets on the site of that development so there's an argument here and what has spooked environmentalists is basically is this taking away uh this penalty going to incentivize building in these areas right now now that is a conscious decision by defra is it uh well you can you know whether or not they wanted to try and incentivize development in local nature recovery areas is is one other thing can't really answer that but we know they're more than aware of the fact that this change um basically takes away the penalty um so i've seen an email sent from defra's local nature recovery strategies team to local government bodies which was looking to reiterate uh, how net gain would work with with these local nature kind of strategies um, and this email says, crucially, the metric doesn't make it more expensive to develop on land identified as part of an LNRS. That's the acronym for these areas, um, because biodiversity value, it said, is already covered by the metric. So DEFRA has refused to confirm or crucially deny um, that it's planning to make this change possible by disapplying that strategic significance multiplier from from baseline calculations, that penalty uh, that I was talking about. Um, but I understand from sources that it, that that is the case um and the, that you know we could be seeing guidance um updated imminently to to reflect this it's i think there's a bit of a tug of war going on internally at the moment over it so then Pippa, what's defra said about all of this so a defra spokesperson said that local nature recovery strategies have been designed to identify the locations where creating or improving habitat would have the greatest benefit for biodiversity and the wider environment And they said that until these strategies are in place across the country, that we must take a transitional approach to the strategic significant multiplier in the metric. And they said they'll be updating the draft user guide ahead of the commencement of biodiversity net gain to ensure that the methodology for assessing strategic significance now and when local nature recovery strategies are published is clear. 
On to our final news story this week, and we are off to Wales, uh, where the government has published proposals to embed a set of environmental principles into Welsh law. Now, we know it wants to establish a new environmental watchdog, which I'm trying so hard to call like the dragon, like the watch dragon. For the, for the but I'm, I'm sure it will take off. Um, it's gonna. I want, it wants to introduce a nature recovery framework with a suite of statutory biodiversity targets. Um, Pippa, it has been a long time coming. This can you take us through some of the highlights? So this is pretty big for Wales, and as you said, it's a long-awaited announcement. But one of the big talking points is this new post-Brexit environmental watchdog for Wales. So this is going to be similar to the Office for Environmental Protection, which covers England and Northern Ireland, and Environmental Standards Scotland, which covers Scotland. Um, and back in March 2020, the Welsh government drew up proposals for such a body. However, the creation has been pushed back many times since then. So what do we know about, you know, the Welsh dragon watchdog? So the consultation document proposes that the body would have a number of core functions, including monitoring and reporting, providing advice to ministers, handling complaints and representations, investigations and enforcement. So pretty similar to the OEP. Um, the document also says that a core role of the body will be providing independent scrutiny and oversight of the delivery of environmental targets, which are set by ministers. The suggestion is that if the governance body considers that a public authority has failed to comply with environmental law, it will then have the discretion as to how it may wish to take further action. So I'm sort of enamoured, as you can tell, by this idea of, you know, the dragon watchdog. Um, but there were other really interesting things in that white paper, weren't there? Yeah, so the other key thing is these new environmental principles, which will reflect those of the EU and also England, um, which comprise of integration, the precautionary principle, prevention, rectification at source and the polluter pays principle. Um, and the consultation proposes that these new principles would be supported by an overarching objective to ensure a high level of environmental protection and improving the quality of the environment in Wales. In England, all policymakers must already have regard for the English version of these environmental principles when making legislative proposals, national policy statements, strategies and guidance, and also when making written ministerial statements. A failure to do so um, essentially opens up the floodgates to legal challenges through judicial review. So it will be quite interesting to see how far the Welsh government goes. It will be. And uh, very, very interesting to see how it sort of tracks with England. Um, there, there was more. Can you tell us more? So the final thing is the creation of a Wales nature recovery framework, which would include a suite of biodiversity targets, or statutory biodiversity targets, I should say, which would comprise of a headline nature positive target and supporting biodiversity targets, which would be set by Welsh ministers in secondary legislation. So again, pretty similar to what we have in England. Um, some of those targets could include species targets, abundance targets and um, targets at extinction risk, with the ultimate aim being to halt and reverse the decline of species and wildlife populations. Now, I mean, I love a target. I really do. You know, we, we report on targets a lot and they're good, but sometimes those targets get missed uh, for all sorts of reasons. But one of the most problematic issues comes down to this you know this idea of monitoring so we don't have the data to know if we've missed the target therefore who actually knows what's going on has the welsh government sort of tried to address this in this white paper tess um 
Well, yes, sort of. So the the consultation says that the Welsh government wants to ensure targets are, and I'm quoting, focused on practical action, whether that be stopping specific activities, expanding others, or making changes to how we go about undertaking activity that could result in biodiversity loss. Um, And so it said the nature recovery framework would also include measures to ensure, quoting again, effective monitoring, reporting and scrutiny requirements uh, for both the headline and supporting targets. So, I mean, they say they want to monitor the targets, but, you know, it's all lovely words. It is. And I'm sure a lot of people will be very excited to read these words. And uh, we will be reporting on how these words are then enacted in due course. Um, Before we leave Wales, um, there was also a nature recovery strategy thrown in there, wasn't there, Pippa? Yeah, so this would set out the Welsh government's long-term vision for a nature-positive Wales, where biodiversity is protected and restored, and it also would set the strategic pathway for the delivery of these statutory targets that we were just talking about. Um, In addition, this framework is set to include a nature recovery action plan, so lots of strategies and plans all going on here. Um, But this would kind of detail the action needed to achieve these targets. And in doing so, it would kind of set out the long term vision for nature positive Wales. The consultation also sets out that the framework would include local nature recovery plans, which would be required to be produced by Welsh public authorities, where they would have to outline the local action and priorities reflecting the nature Wales recovery strategy. Um, So, yeah, quite a lot of different strategies and plans, but basically it's all under this overarching aim to kind of halt biodiversity loss. It's time now for a moment of the week where we bring you something fun, uh, silly, exciting, charming. And I'm going to hog this moment of the week, everyone. I'm sorry. I did say, listeners, last week that until we found Honshu the monkey, I would not rest on the moment of the week to report to you the latest developments. Well, it's going to be a very short uh, weekly report because we finally found Honshu. So for listeners who didn't tune in last week, this is all about Honshu, the Japanese macaque who escaped the Highland Wildlife Park in the Cairngorms up in Scotland. Um, and there was essentially a hunt for him. Uh, they put out the drones, I mean, of course, to try and find him in the trees or wherever, wherever Honshu was hanging out. We now know where he was hanging out. He was at a bird feeder eating nuts um, a couple of miles away. Wow. So... Um, we found him. He ran away because he was scared of the uh, other males in the group. It's breeding season and they're bigger and stronger than him. And I think he felt like he had to run away. So, yeah, it's a good job he wasn't mistaken for a bird and, and shot by a different kind of hunter. I'll, I'll be, wow, wow. That's a whole episode right there, Tess. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, not for those reasons, but I, I didn't put my money on Hanshu. Making I, it out. I alive. didn't think he was going to come back. I thought once he hits the wild, he's he's once he, toast. Mm. But he didn't. He didn't. He made it. Resilient. He is resilient. Never underestimate a Japanese macaque. I certainly won't. I, and, and that is your moment of the week, folks. On to our deep dive now as we dig deeper into the world of PFAS and N's recent publication of the PFAS files. Um, it is this extraordinary compilation of work uh, that N's report has done. Um, and Tess, you, can you just explain to our subscribers you know, why you wanted to commission this, write on it? Like, why? Yeah, well, basically PFAS or Forever Chemicals is their 
uh, often dubbed for their refusal to, to break down in, in the environment and, of course, in our bodies. They've um, been gaining a, a, a kind of an increased profile here in the UK. Um, and that's largely because, you know, they've got all these health implications, potentially, like more and more studies are showing they can affect your reproductive system, your, your immune system, potentially be carcinogenic. And they're everywhere as we've been talking about in today's episode. So they're a problem. And probably, I mean, this is, I suppose, my view, but I think a lot of people think it's possibly the, the, the biggest environmental risk of our time. While the dangers posed by these chemicals have seen countries like the US sitting a bit straighter, you've had a Hollywood film made about it, Dark Waters, um, billion-dollar settlements paid out by chemical firms. The UK, it's, the UK's approach seems to have been a little less blockbuster um, so basically, I really wanted to get into it and see, has the UK got a grip of this problem? Um, and, you know, if if not, why? And what what what's it? What's how's this playing out here? Pippa's story was a big part of that, uh, showing we really do have a, a big problem. All these landfills potentially posing these environmental risks, but there are impacts across society. So we wanted to look at that. And let's get into my favourite title of these reports, which subscribers to the ends report you can log on and read right now um but my favorite headline was the bubonic plague <laughs> now we're not talking about the bubonic plague but can you just can you just take us into the problems around brownfield land and how pfas is coming into this picture yeah brownfield's bubonic plague never never known for hyperbole here at the eco chamber um but basically, so brownfield land is in high demand. All the major political parties want to see it prioritised for, for housing development. And, you know, Labour has stated plans to build 1.5 million homes over the next five year period if elected uh, at this year's general election. Um, but there is this problem that PFAS is posing. And that problem is twofold, really. But delays first. We're starting to see um, developments, including large housing developments, stalled and delayed because the environment agency is saying, actually, you, you know, we, we're not sure that there isn't a PFAS problem here. You need to go back and test for it. Um, so that's one thing. And it's starting to, you know, well, it's obviously frustrating the development industry. Um, but, you know, no one would say, oh, you know, how dare the EEA go and tell them to test with PFAS? Of course, we want them to be testing for this sort of thing. Um, but the problem is, is that the industry doesn't have a clue what standards really the government wants it to be meeting right. um, because we've been had so much dither and delay over our chemical strategy, our post-Brexit vision of what the UK is going to do. Um, but there's this big black hole of, of understanding um, and that is meaning that you're getting increased uncertainty and when you get increased uncertainty, you get people holding off and not wanting to do things um, and then you also get situations where you know, companies are losing money because, you know, delays in development mean a lot of cash. Um, the second problem is insurers are, are taking fright. And this is something um, that was, you know, new to me when I was writing about this. Because um, when you clean up the brownfield site, you have to, well, firstly, you have to try and clean it up. But then you've got to get insurance to say, well, you know, if, if we've missed something, um, right. who's, whose problem is it? Who, who can get sued? And this is obviously quite an important thing. Um, and PFAS is 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 making them run for the hills, as I understand it. They're shying away from it because, again, because they're not sure really what standards anyone's going to be held to. Um, and I had one lawyer, Keith Davidson from Erwin Mitchell, describe 
uh, to me is some insurers are treating PFAS like the bubonic plague. So there's that headline. Um, yeah. It wasn't hyperbole. <laughs> it wasn't hyperbole. I told you, never see hyperbole here. Um, but they, he said the whole market is running scared with the likelihood of future regulatory shifts making it unclear just you know where responsibility is set to lie for this big, massive PFAS pollution. And I think it's really interesting because housing's going to be all over the shop this year in politics on you know on the mainstream tv debates you're going to hear about that um right. but a lot it's often these environmental issues often get sort of scapegoated uh, but this really is going to be a big one yeah I, I i think i find it quite hard in my head to try and scapegoat it mm. how dare you test and and no i know our poisonous well no but we you know we saw it with mutual neutrality last year i mean that's much less of a you know, people aren't as scared <laughs> of right. nutrient, nutri- nutrients as, as they are PFAS. But, uh, and it's probably, you know, stalling or set to stall potentially fewer sites. I haven't got any stats on that, but actually, you know, that's my gut feeling. Um, and we we know that the development lobby is, is very well resourced, where other lobbies maybe aren't. So one to watch. I mean, there is a lot of money that's being put at this problem, this contamination problem, not specifically PFAS, but, you know, the the, the Homes England put up a £1 billion fund to unlock, you know, that 40,000 new homes on brownfield sites in England, Mm. which, you know, there is a a large amount for remediation, not just PFAS, but for remediation. And and, and like you say, there's lots of regulatory issues with this. I'd like to move on to some other problematic applications of PFAS and that is firefighters and firefighting foam and the implications of us not using them anymore. Can you just explain to our readers what what that um, story, that briefing was all about? Yeah, so this is uh, actually another one of Pippa's uh, as part of the briefing. Uh, She kind of had got hold of these uh, documents just basically they they show that there are at least one point seven almost 1.7 million liters of this soon to be banned toxic firefighting from stockpiled in the uk um and the reason that it's not being banned yet is just because simply it's it's very useful chemical for putting out fires and it was given an exception but this exception is is due to to run out if you like next year um and then we're going to have this huge amount of PFOA firefighting foam sitting around. And there's a big question about, you know, what the hell are you going to do with it? Um, and her piece looks at, you know, what what you can maybe do about that. But remediation and how you, is it even possible to, to remove PFAS from the environment? This is another part of the briefing. Um, Catherine Early, a, a writer who contributes to ENDS quite often, uh, looked at, you know, the various technologies currently available and some that are emerging to try and um, isolate PFAS from various types of places. So you've got water, you've also got issues of trying to get out of soil, which is a whole other thing um, and how difficult it basically is. But, you know, there's a lot of focus being put on it. And I think there's some of the industry, some of the development industry indeed would like to see more investment put there or, or certainly more regulatory backing for some of these technologies. Um, I think the other side of the coin is you know we can try and remove it all we want but these are everywhere you're never going to catch it all and really we just really need to start reducing the amounts we have um but i think it's not you know there's no right or wrong particularly on that particular debate because they're in we've got them we've got pfas what are we going to do about them um but 
there's loads of information in this briefing if you're interested in those details of how you know what what can we actually do to to get these chemicals out they're forever but are they really really forever if you really really try really hard um <laughs> really really, <laughs> really hard. hard really trying just weren't trying hard enough yeah okay um, i thought it was i did think it was really interesting because of course there is the the, the implication of pefoa on you know the firefighters that have been using that stuff and you know, the links to cancer and you know that that whole saga for so many firefighters i would not want to be using the stuff that's for sure mm-hmm. um but there's also there is also sort of a, a, a not just a sort of a moral question there but also there's sort of the financial implications because i i, I was astounded to read about the the buntsfield fire you know arguably the most high profile case of of where we where we where we use pefoa to put out the fire there the explosion seven to eight million liters of fluorinated firefighting foam solution that literally blew me away and unfortunately for listeners who who don't know about the explosion you know that then led to massive groundwater contamination the most expensive costs to date in the uk mm-hmm. where five companies were fined a total of 5.3 million quid in that role of the explosion and the subsequent pollution mm. which 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 cost four million quid but the point i'm trying to make is that actually the long-term benefit costs of getting PFOA out of our firefighting foam is there too. Mm. It's not just a moral one, mm. um, which Absolutely. I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And um, this, the, the, you know, when with this, this ban coming in, it will, it will force that hand. I was also really interested to read your brief about salmon. Now it's not to do with PFAS, um, but it is an interesting subject in relation to to contamination. Can, can you just take us through that salmon piece? Yeah, I mean salmon. The whole piece isn't about salmon, I would say. But no, so I just love salmon. So. No, I, <laughs> well, it's about you know the, another great headline. I would say uh, the mysterious case of the coho salmon, and it is a mysterious case because it was it's this thing that happened in the US. There was a twenty year mystery around these fish die offs and a chemical called, always catchy, 6-PPD quinone. Um, wow. Yes. Uh, it's an oxidised product of an additive to tyre rubber. Um, and no, it's not PFAS, but it's sort of been identified as an emerging threat. I mean, maybe one that people maybe need to be actually thinking about here now. Um, but what happened was uh, scientists eventually discovered that this chemical, the 6-PPD, I'm just going to call it that, so for a shorthand um the sick ppd was the cause of of these mass dives but only it only affected some species it didn't affect others and that you know that's i think confusing. that's still it still kind of uh confuses to the to this day i think just why some are affected and some aren't um but you know in, in november last year the the federal environmental protection agency um committed to taking action on on six ppd um, and that was going to take effect as soon as practical in, in the US, apparently, uh, to, to eliminate the unreasonable risk of, of the chemical in tyres being present in the environment. Um, and now scientists in Europe have taken note of, of kind of what's been going on in the US and studies done there, carried out tests on kind of closely related salmon and, and brown trout uh, here, here in Europe. Um, and they found them to be tolerant fortunately but then they're, they're still quite nervous about kind of what they don't know um and this piece with james fair wrote another one of our 
great contributors to to the PFAS files. Um, basically, people kind of science scientists in the US told him like, look, like um, this is maybe one people need to be looking out for um, because coming soon to a, a regulator near you. I mean, I do think it's so incredible that you can have one contaminant that kills, you know, species um, within the same family and others not. I mean, I think it's absolutely unreal. But not everyone will be as uh, enamoured by fish kills as I am, Tess. Why Why did you want to sort of commission this piece in, yeah. in the PFAS? Yeah, well I, well, I just think it's interesting because now that we are talking about PFAS a lot more and there's still obviously loads that we don't know and... You know, it's still, as we've been discussing, regulators need to decide what they're going to do about it here. Um, it may, it does beg the question of what else don't we know? What's the next, of what's the next big chemical? What's the, what is, what, what chemicals are already causing problems that we're not even thinking about? And so the idea of this piece and to include it in the PFAS files is just to basically pose that question of, you know, we are, what, what don't we know? There's loads we don't know. But I think it's interesting to look to the states, which it does seem to be in a lot of, ways a bit further ahead of of us and certainly europe um which we're going to go on to talk about i know um but these are things that are being talked about elsewhere they're not being talked about here so much certainly um and i think it's worth bearing in mind and that piece talks about things other than the coho salmon so do go and have a look that's it's very interesting and scary of course if if um america's leading the way on the other side of the atlantic the eu is still seen as leaders mm. right yeah um can you can you just sort of take us through your um briefing on on sort of the eu and and you know and and where the uk is going with the yeah. eu on well, yeah the eu is definitely a, a leader here i mean they're the eu is there's that got a proposal in for a, a big blanket ban on on pfas and that's something that it doesn't exist anywhere else uh not not in the u.s um, so it's definitely leading the way. But what we have in the briefing is a look at um, what will it mean if this if this blanket ban goes ahead in the EU? What does that mean over here? We've done Brexit, but we're not actually we haven't actually gone very far <laughs> geographically, and we're still our biggest trading partner. Um, so what does that mean? Well, the jury is out, but the conclusion I think you could say of what we've we've heard is that. Um, you, if the EU want, if the if the UK wants to keep trading with with the EU, we're probably going to have to fall in line to a certain extent. We can probably not afford to diverge significantly. Um, however, there's there are big questions about, you know, what would actually imp- implementing a ban mean in practical terms, and is it even if it, is it even the best thing to do? Because what you can often find is you say, okay, we've banned that PFAS, let's do this other PFAS because um, you've got evidence that the first PFAS is bad and you haven't got any, the other one hasn't really been looked at so much. And then 10 years down the line, you find, oh, that one was actually also bad. It's called regrettable substitution as a thing. So sometimes banning can cause a bigger problem, I think is what some people argue and have argued to Shosha AED, who, who wrote that piece on divergence. It's definitely worth having a look at. Um, and it's all a big live issue at the moment, of course. So yeah, one to watch. And that's it. We've come to the end of this week's Eco Chamber. My thanks to Tess Colley and Pippa Neal for exploring PFAS, net gain, and Wales's Welsh dragon watchdog. Dragon watch. 
We'd really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, your views, your opinions. You can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.